Oh, Father, this weak vessel needs your help this morning in bringing your word to your people. My confidence is in your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Holy Spirit, would you pierce our hearts so that not one of us would leave this morning unchanged for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, for our guests, my name is Rick. I'm one of the elder pastors here. And I want to just thank you for being here this morning. And I want to welcome you back for next week, for Easter Sunday, when our lead pastor, Tim Irwin, will be preaching. Um, This morning's message is a life proclaim. We're in our second week of our um, series in 1 Thessalonians. I believe the main idea in this morning's message is no matter what comes, may our joy in Christ give hope to a lost and dying world. Well, Leslie became a Christian in 1979, and her husband, Lee, said her decision left the couple teetering on divorce. Lee said he began referring to himself as an atheist during his teenage years, and after he had married his wife, Leslie, he loathed her subsequent conversion to Christianity. Lee said, I had married one Leslie, the fun Leslie, the carefree Leslie, the risk-taking Leslie, and now I feared she was going to turn into some holy roller or something. Lee said it all started when a woman who lived in their condo building disrupted the status quo in his marriage. Leslie, through her friendship with this woman, saw something modeled that made her rethink all that she thought she had believed. Lee thought the mere concept of an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe was ridiculous. So Lee started on a journey to disprove his wife's Christianity. Well, I have three points to this morning's message. So let's get started with point one. When suffering comes, be imitators. Let's look in your Bibles at verse six. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to first look at this word imitators and how it's not meant to be used in this verse. The doctrine of imitation can be confusing at times. It can be misused. A couple examples, read three chapters a day, pray one hour a day, and confess at least two sins, and you can be spiritual also. Or you have a Christian couple that has a great marriage, and they say, do as we do, and your marriage can be great also. Imitation, imitators in the Greek is mimetes. It's where we get the word mime. Now, in verse 6, imitators is not used in terms of mime or mimic or play acting, like when one's outward demonstration of something is not a reality in their life. Now, Lee was surprised by the changes he saw in his wife, saying, I was pleasantly surprised, even fascinated by the fundamental changes in her character, in her integrity, and in her personal confidence. Now, if Leslie was play-acting or just mimicking her Christian friend, do you think her atheistic husband would have been surprised by the changes he saw? No, he would have quickly realized that it was all an act. So, church, that is what be imitators is not. 
When Paul says become imitators, he is saying model Christ. The Thessalonian converts became imitators of Paul because Paul modeled himself on Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, Paul is not saying he's perfect. Paul is not putting himself in the same category as the Lord Jesus Christ. His example is a humble, radical dependence on Christ. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they're all pointers. They are, by their example and their preach words, they are pointing the Thessalonians to Christ. Now, Paul goes on to say, for you received the word. Now, why didn't Paul say you received the word before you became imitators? Wouldn't you have to receive the word before you could become imitators? Well, what Paul's saying is, I know you received the gospel because you became imitators and started walking with us while we're walking with Christ. Church, it was no picnic for the Thessalonians to imitate Christ. Paul knew how costly it was for them to believe. Now, some might say, I know I'm a Christian because I said the prayer. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. And that's all the evidence you have of their, their life as being a Christian. Um, their life has not changed one bit. Their life doesn't even remotely resemble Christ. So let me ask you this, when it comes to your faith, what kind of imitator are you? Are you mimetes, like a mime, only mimicking the Christian life? An outward demonstration of something that's not a reality in your life? Or is your faith a humble dependence on Christ, daily dying to yourself? Now, as imperfect as we are, does your life look like one that is daily striving to live as Christ lived. Church, it's about a way of life. So let's take a look for a second at baptism. Now, baptism is, is an example of this new identity, this new life, and it's also an example of this call to suffering. Think about this the next time you watch a baptism. You're witnessing the death of someone to the old world in order that they might be resurrected to a new life and follow Jesus. You see, in baptism, you die to your wants and your desires and your wishes, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You die to yourself in this old way of life, and your hope looks beyond the trials and tribulations of this world and towards the promises of another. So I would encourage you, if you're a believer and you have not been baptized, Get with one of the elders. We would love to have a conversation with you. Leslie said her husband's antagonism towards Christianity was both frustrating and baffling, as he was eager to discuss anything except her newfound faith. She struggled to deal with her husband's ever-growing anger. Leslie, in her suffering, held firm in her faith, praying for the Lord to give Lee a new heart. Now, the Thessalonians became imitators coming to Christ holding firm in their faith, even in the midst of much affliction. Let's look in our Bibles again at verse 6. 
And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you receive the word in much affliction. Now, I want to just focus on this word affliction for a moment. A lot of times we can read scripture and we read a word like affliction and we really don't think much about it. I know I can be guilty of that. Well, what did much affliction look like for the Thessalonians? Well, it looked like severe suffering, great difficulty, hardship, pain, trouble. There was misery for the Thessalonians because they held firm in their faith. John 16, says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have, not might have, but you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In their affliction, the Thessalonians became imitators of their Savior, the Savior who suffered the mocking, the rejection, and scorn, and ultimately death. Obedience brought suffering to Christ, and all those who seek to follow Christ will experience some sort of persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Church, we have not seen actual persecution. We live in a country that has laws that protects our religious freedoms. But let me ask you this. What if that changes? Are you prepared to suffer for Christ? Now, Tim asked a question a couple of weeks ago. If you were considering moving to Thessalonica, would you join that church? Now, before you answer that, think about it. The church, that suffering church. I thought it was a great question. And I think it's a question that we all should be asking ourselves. We live in an unbelieving world. If you doubt that, just turn the news on for five minutes. A world that will always remain deeply hostile towards the gospel. So what if parts of God's word are outlawed? What are you willing to risk? To give up. Luther asks this If Christ wore a crown of thorns, why should his followers expect only a crown of roses? In much affliction, the God, for the gospel, the Thessalonians church experienced family members disowning family members, the government saying, Do this or you will suffer, your property being taken away, and some losing their very lives. If you remember a couple weeks ago, Acts 17, Jason is dragged out by the people. Riots came because of the gospel coming to Thessalonica. Now imagine this. Imagine riots coming to Titusville because Trinity preaching the gospel. Church, think about this. In the midst of all hell breaking loose, in the midst of all this affliction, the Thessalonians had joy. That's amazing. For Lee, the logical way to live as an atheist was to live a hedonistic lifestyle, pursuing, pursuing pleasure any way he could. Despite this, Leslie told Lee that because of her newfound faith, her love for him is deeper than ever before. She loved him more. Once she became a believer, she loved him in ways she couldn't communicate. Her worldview entirely changed, and people became more significant. Leslie had a joy that she couldn't explain 
Church, may we be imitators with joy. Now, how can you go through what the Thessalonians went through and have joy? Now, the end of verse 6 says, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is talking about true joy, a joy that is only possible because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, our problem, and I am preaching to myself, is that we can often think true joy is relaxing in front of the TV after a hard day's work, watching a good old Hallmark movie, looking for that happy ending. (laughs) Had to get Hallmark in there. (laughs) Finally making it to retirement. Four months, three days, 12 hours, 32 minutes, uh, 29th, well, who's counting? (laughs) Getting that perfect job. Finally affording that dream vacation. Alaska, here I come. Or for um, these young parents, your kids finally obeying you the next time you go out to dinner. (laughs) Or a government running the way we think it should. Now, I could go on and on and on. In of itself, none of these things are bad. But none of them will bring you true joy. So what is it for you? What are you loving? Where are you placing your affections? What do you meditate on? What do you dream about? What do you put your energy into or your finances into? Now, if your hope is based on the promises of this world, you will not be described as a joyful person. At best, you'll have moments of joy which will be quickly dashed away by the worries and problems of this world. Now, Paul is saying true joy is an unspeakable joy, a joy found in the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit, a joy that comes from peace with God because our sins have been forgiven, a a joy that knows God will make all things right one day, a joy that will never end, and a joy that the world never gave and can never take away. John 16, 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Church, may we grow in imitating Jesus, even if that means picking up our cross and dying. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, did that for us, and that gives us hope and faith for the future with eternity in view. So we may not always be called to endure the type of affliction that the Thessalonians endured. But all of us have lived through some type of grief and hardship that this life brings. And I know that there are some here that are currently or have in the past experienced real suffering. God was using the difficulty in Thessalonica to conform those new believers to the image of his son And we can trust that God will use all the suffering we endure to do the same for us. The Thessalonians excelled in imitating Paul's example with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So now Paul points out that the Thessalonians had become an example to others. My second point, when suffering comes, be an example. Let's look at verse 7 in your Bibles. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. When Leslie told her husband she had become a follower of Christ, Lee thought, this is the worst possible news I could get. He explained, 
I thought she was going to turn into some prude who was going to spend all of her time serving the poor on Skid Row somewhere. I thought this was the end of our marriage. But instead, Lee, Lee said, I saw positive changes in her values and her character and the way she related to me and the children. It was winsome, it was attractive, and it made me want to check things out. So I went to church one day. Well, Trinity, may we be an example, yeah. the church. The Thessalonians' life was an example. Their testimony had much power. It was mind-boggling to the people of Thessalonica who witnessed it. Now, I want you to notice the you in verse 7 is plural. Now, why is that important? This would mean the entire Thessalonian church, not just some of the individuals there, was an example. Trinity, we as a church suffer together. Our suffering may not look the same, but we are a body. And when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. The Thessalonian church and their suffering was a model to other churches proclaiming the gospel. Those who witnessed this would travel outside of Thessalonica and would talk about a group of people who called themselves Christians, who were being persecuted, abandoned by their families, their homes being taken away, being counted as worthless, and in some cases being killed. And they would say in total amazement, but they are the most joyful people on the planet. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. You see, church, they started out imitating the example, and then they became the example. So ask yourself, are you becoming an example? Are you growing in your Christian walk? Are you growing in your maturity? Now, during the year, we offer different equipped classes. Are you taking advantage of those classes? What about discipleship relationships? You know, why, may we always see the value of grabbing a cup of coffee, or in my case now tea, with another brother and ladies with another lady. May we take advantage of those opportunities to grow together. I thank God for my relationships over the years with other believers who have modeled Christ for me. Every believer should become an example of Christ. And yes, we are flawed. <laughs> But don't use that as an excuse not to grow. Trinity, be an example to your community and to the world. Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The word of the Lord the early Christians had a conviction that the message they proclaimed was not the product of human wisdom, but it was of truly divine origin. Church, that's why on a Sunday morning when I read scripture, before I read scripture, I will tell you, church, this is God's word. This is a conviction that God's word is truly of divine origin. It is the very words of God to us. We can preach with boldness because it's not our opinion. It is the word of the Lord. Therefore, we cannot, we must not ever compromise, no matter what 
the consequences may be. So let's continue in verse 8. Sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Now, Macedonia and Achaia are two provinces which together embrace all of Greece. I don't know if you remember the map a couple of weeks ago, Tim put up. It's not a small area. The Thessalonian church witnessed in such a way that it sounded forth. It rang out like bells violently ringing out. It trumpeted forth. It thundered out. Church, we need to ask ourselves, what is our witness for Christ like? Is it thundering out from us or is it quiet as a mouse? Verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to to serve the living and true God. So they turned to God from idols. They did a 180. This church was predominantly pagan Gentile who had worshipped the gods of Greece and Rome. Now, the early church, turning from idols, it was radical evidence of their conversion. The Thessalonians were faced with the worship of idols and even the worship of Caesar. So they had to repent of that sin and turn and follow Jesus. Now, we can sometimes think, man, I'm glad I don't have to face the worship of idols or the temptation to bow down to idols, or do we? You see, idolatry comes to us in many different ways. Idols can come to us in forms of money, jobs, sex, power, sports, recreation, just to name a few. Tim Keller says, sin isn't only doing bad things. It's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. Church, we face idolatry just as much as our brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. We must respond to them in the same way. We must repent. Now, repentance is a central aspect in the Christian faith. It's at the heart of what it means to be Christian. Now, we can sometimes think, well, when I became a believer... I repented for my sins, and I'm good to go for life. Well, that's true if you truly repented for your sins. But if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you soon realize sin continues, so repentance needs to be ongoing. You see, if you think it's a one-time deal, you'll find yourself on this crazy roller coaster. You know, one day, on a good day, It's looking pretty good for me. I think I might be saved. On a bad day, eh, it's not looking too good for me now. So what is an ongoing struggle for you? What do you need to have ongoing repentance in a certain area? One of my areas of ongoing struggle is the sin of impatience. Now, as a young believer, I repented for impatience. So I'm, I'm good to go. I turned from it. I did a 180. But also, as a young believer, that caused me a lot of confusion because I would repent for impatience and then it would quickly return. And I would think, man, did I, did I really repent? Am I saved? Well, church, this is a misunderstanding of sin and repentance. Our sin is beyond our knowledge. So great is our sin 
that has sent God's son to the cross. Think about that. Our sin is so deep, so pervasive that the son of God had to die in our place. You see, the truth is we cannot fully stop sinning. The rest of our lives will be a struggle with sin. Sin in our lives will only stop when we take our final breath and we get to heaven. Now, with that being said, we cannot stop there. Repentance is a continuous event. It's ongoing. We must grow in our repentance as we grow in our faith. Martin Luther, when he posted a 95 thesis on the church door at Wittenberg Cathedral, the issue of repentance was in the very first thesis. Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Believer, you will never get away from repentance. Repentance is how Jesus designed the Christian life for our growth, our maturity, and our holiness. See, church, by God's grace of repentance in my life, I am less impatient now than I was 10 years ago, but I am still a work in progress. Now, you may be thinking, what is repentance? I'm glad you asked. Well, repentance is turning away from your sin and turn to the, tr- to the living and true God, to change your course, to do a 180. The verb in repentance means to turn. It's more than a single experience. It encompasses the entire Christian life. A helpful description of repentance comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87. What is repentance unto life? Answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of endeavor after new obedience. Full purpose. You see, church, it's not committing a sin and just quickly saying, forgive me, just to check off a box with no heartfelt sorrow for it. We, let me ask you this. If you've never asked for forgiveness, if you've never repented for your sin, or maybe you did years ago, but your life never really changed. Your life doesn't even remotely look like Christ. I would pray that the Holy Spirit would be convicting you this morning causing you to ask, what must I do? Well, the first thing is acknowledge that you're a sinner. You cannot skip this. If you cannot admit that you're a sinner, then you have not repented. The root issue in repentance is the acknowledgement that sin is indeed sin. Second, you have a sense of grief, a, a sense of hatred of your sin, a sorrow for your sin. Sin is ugly, it's foul, it's offensive to God. There have been times in my life where sin has brought me to my knees in sorrow for the way I have hurt someone and I've offended God. Has the awareness of sin ever brought you to your knees? Third, we turn from our sin unto God. In the case of the Thessalonians, they turned from the temple's And the false gods, those gods that represented wealth, happiness, and fame. 
So a crucial part of repentance is the desire, is the desire for God over everything else. And fourth, we have a new purpose of obedience. We desire to practice righteousness. We desire to please God. Remember, the catechism says a purpose of new obedience is called the fruit of repentance in Scripture. God is alive. He is real. God has given us a promise and hope for this life. And that brings me to my final point. When suffering comes, be eternity-minded. Let's look at verse 10. And wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Trinity, may we be eternity-minded. Christ delivers us from the wrath to come. That is amazing. Well, back in January, Pat and I were sitting in our backyard watching a fire. Now, I was burning this stump from a tree that had fallen a few years ago. And this stump had been burning for hours. And as I would take a long stick and try to push some, fire, some of the logs up against the stump to keep it burning, the fire was so hot that it was singeing the arms on my hair. Um, the, hair the arms on my hair. I'm not nervous. The hairs on my arm. I mean, it was, it was painfully hot. We were sitting probably 10 feet back from this fire. And it was a cold day. Well, as we both looked at this fire, we both just shuddered at the thought of, of the wrath of God against sin and hell. What a horrible thought. Romans 2.8, Paul warned, for those who do not obey the truth, there will be wrath and fury. The horror of not repenting and holding fast to the testimony of Jesus. Listen to this description of the wrath of God by the apostle of love, John. It's absolutely terrifying. Revelations 14, 10 through 11. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pulled out full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast in this image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Revelations twenty fifteen. and if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. These verses communicate something unspeakably horrible. If you're not a believer this morning, I would plead with you to flee this. Cry out for God's mercy found in his son. Trinity, we want to grow in imitating Christ. We want to grow in our witness. Every believer should strive for that. But that 
will never save you. Christian reminded us last week, it is not about our performance. It is about the power of the gospel. It is only because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that you have been rescued and delivered right out of the wrath of God. That is amazing grace. Now look at the beginning of verse 10 again. And wait for his son from heaven. Present tense, waiting for God's son, the one who died. He has promised to return to earth and to take us to our eternal home. John 14, 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. So church, we wait with great anticipation. We wait and remember. We wait while we're remembering. We wait and celebrate and we wait and display. Now, when I was discussing the theme of this message with my wife, Pat, she came to me a little while later with a thought, and I'd like to I'd like to share that with you. Our human nature is to look forward to the future, to get ready for what's coming. That upcoming vacation, wedding, birthday, Christmas, that's a big one. We decorate, we shop, we bake, we sing, all in anticipation of the big day. When it finally arrives, even before the day is over, we can feel a sense of sadness that it's done. We have lost the joy of anticipation. What if we knew with absolute certainty that something we anticipated would be beyond what we had the ability to comprehend or feel? How would that affect and sustain our anticipation? What if it was far better than our anticipation and it didn't end? That will be life with Jesus in heaven for eternity. So let's remind ourselves of that regularly. Through his word with others, using the gifts and means that God gives us. If I could have the worship team come forward. In conclusion, the most significant hope we have is his son, Jesus Christ. Is that hope alive in your heart? If not, admit that you're a sinner. Trust Christ as your Savior, and he will give you a hope that will make life worth living. If Christ lives in your heart, you have a living hope. God's promises far outweigh the labor. Lee said Leslie modeled her faith in such a way that it influenced him to begin his own search for God. Lee, with a law degree from Yale, an award-winning career in journalism at the Chicago Tribune, tells of his two years' intensive research and attempt to prove Leslie wrong. But instead, it led him to receive Jesus as his Savior. The change in his life also influenced her five-year-old daughter, Allison, who said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. Leslie's faith created a ripple effect that changed the whole family. Soon after, Lee Strobel 
wrote the New York Times bestseller, A Case for Christ. Now, I gave my copy of Lee Strobel's book to my atheist uncle, who loved to debate and was a lot like Lee. My uncle was dying of cancer. I hope that my sister Patty's influence and the truths in that book in my uncle's life made a difference. Church, we must never give up. Paul's example, along with Savanus and Timothy, motivated new believers in Thessalonica to imitate them, which ultimately led them to imitate Christ. Our example can be our most persuasive influence for Christ. Church, may we become more like Christ each and every day. So let's stand and worship our Lord and Savior.